But tonight, as we go forward, we have the offerings, and now we look at the priesthood, because the priests are going to minister the offerings. And again, all this stuff points toward Christ, because we know that Christ is symbolic in every offering. There's something that points us to Jesus with all these offerings, because they all deal with dealing with sin and the removal of sin and forgiveness from sins, which ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. These are shadows of things to come, but Christ is the fullness. Then, tonight as we come to the priesthood, these are our priests, you know, the Levitical priesthood. So remember, Israel as a nation comes from Jacob, whose name is Israel, and he had 12 sons, and those are the 12 tribes, and the one tribe is the tribe of Levi uh, that the priests come from. So out of, 11, out of the 12 tribes, one was specifically set apart to serve the Lord with the priesthood and take care of the religious ordinances, the feast, the holidays, animal sacrificial system, and they're the Levites. And there are now the Levites are subdivided into three tribes. So, you know, Levi and then the Marites, the Gershonites and the Kohathites. And so the Kohathites are the the main priests. And that's from Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron, Moses, too, was a Kohathite. Of course, they're, they're Levites. And Aaron, his brother, is the high priest. And so that lot fell to them to do that. And that high priest would be high priest his lifetime. There's only one high priest, and as we get in more to the feast, we'll see more about Yom Kippur and what the high priest does there later on in the book of Leviticus. But there's been all this talk about it in Exodus and, and here in Leviticus, and now we have action. And so tonight, it's the dedication of the priesthood. It's the consecration of the priesthood, and the sacrifices go with it, and the events that happen historically in the context of beginning the priesthood. So that's our background. It's very important. And we're going to learn a lot tonight. God's going to speak to us by his word as we go verse by verse through his word, the living word that he's exalted even above his name. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, those are the priestly garments that were described for us earlier on in Exodus, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as a sin offering, two rams and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now remember, the tabernacle is a central place of worship. We had all those details in Exodus. It's uh, about the length, half a football field, 50 yards long, but rectangular, not as wide. And that's the central place of worship. And the altar for sacrifices out front of the tabernacle because it's a tent. And there's a courtyard, if you will. And then the holy place and the most holy where the Ark of the Covenant was in the uh, Ten Commandments and all that stuff. Verse 4, So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, and he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod and with its ties, uh, with it ties the ephod on him. Then he put the breastplate on him, and he put the urm and the thurum in the breastplate, and he put the turban on his head. Remember, it says holiness of the Lord. Also on the turban on his front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all of its utensils, the laver, its base, to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then Moses brought Aaron's son and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes, and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now as we come to this text, this first part, these first 13 verses, notice a couple things here. First of all, the Lord says to Moses, now God, of course, is initiating everything, and he says to Moses, who's the mediator of the covenant. So like, 
the Lord's speaking from the throne in heaven, that glorious throne in Revelation 4, and he speaks to Moses, who's that mediator of this covenant, and he says, look, get Aaron and his sons with him and gather the congregation together at the tabernacle of meeting. This is an amazing thing. If you really think about this, you can read through this in your morning devotion or something and not think that much of it, but let's stop for a minute. This is the living God, God of wonders beyond our galaxy. And speaking from his throne, the God who made the universe, our Abba Father, Yahweh, and he's, he's speaking to Moses in time, space, and matter, in our dimension, outside of our dimension. And he tells him, bring all the people of covenant together. So the 12 tribes, million plus people, the congregation, bringing them together all around the tabernacle. So that morning, everyone would have awoken up, and they already know that the Lord's in their midst. You know, remember the, the mountain when it burned and all that, the smoke and all that? So this is a very reverent circumstance situation contextually. And God wants the entire nation, the people of covenant, gathered together to see what's going to happen with Aaron and his sons. They're consecrating the priesthood, and it's really important as they're there for, on behalf of all the people. These Levites are chosen by God to represent all the nation in their covenant. And they really are a type of Christ. They're actually a type of New Testament believers as well. Because we're told that Aaron, who received the anointing oil in this text, that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, so Aaron was a high priest anointed with oil. We know that Jesus is our great high priest. And we know that he's, that the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism with John in a special way and was equipped to do what he was called to do. And we know that the anointing oil symbolically speaks to the Holy Spirit. And so Aaron is a shadow of type of things to come as the high priest. We're told in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest who didn't have to make sacrifices every year because he was the sacrifice and died once for all. Thus, when Jesus died on the cross, all that we're reading here and going through Leviticus is a shadow, but Christ fulfills it. It's important to understand that. We're not going backwards and making priests and doing animal sacrifices. But it, it, there's great treasures and riches to see here as we study this that we can be thoroughly equipped for the things God has for us. And as we look at this, we realize that Jesus is our great high priest and so much superior in his priesthood than what Aaron was in his. But it's important that all the congregations gather together to see this. It's a very special event contextually. Like, what day did this ever happen again? Like, what day? how many days on planet Earth has it been like this? Where they're in front of the tabernacle in a covenant with God, and he's speaking from his throne to Moses, and the people gather together, and here comes Aaron, who, of course, had already had the great failure with the golden calf. Here comes the Levites, and they're ready to serve. Everything's been built. It's all there. It's uh, opening day. That's what it is. It's opening day for the kingdom of God under the Mosaic Covenant. All Everything else was like prequel, preseason, if you will. This is opening day. It begins now, here, this day it begins. And in this background, here they come. So the guys get washed, and Moses was told to bring the anointing oil, the spices, these different things, the different the two lambs, the different sacrifices, the bull. So you see this list in the first couple of verses. The anointing oil, the garments, well, the, the people, Aaron and his sons, the garments, the anointing oil, the bull, the two rams, the basket of unleavened bread, and all the people. These are the elements of the storyline. And they come and they begin this process of being consecrated and set apart. It's very special. Now, nowhere near the level of comparison, but worth noting, whenever we've had the ordination services here at our church, when we've ordained pastors, I was seeing, looking at the photos recently of when we had Sam Kokas, Pastor Sam's ordination, 
it's really special. You know, it's like in a sense, it's the same type of thing. Like we're consecrating and uh, ordaining and anointing Sam Coca and his family to the calling that God has on their life as in ministry. Now we knew he'd be moving to Pennsylvania. We didn't know we'd get him back to be serving here at WG again for such a time as this. But that's what that was like. It was a very special thing, and we've we've had a few, you know, maybe a half dozen of these in our history. Raul Diaz, a few others. I mean, it's very special. Like, it's a very special thing when we've had that consecration ordination for ministry of this level. Now, again, we're talking pastorally in this church, but this is in the priesthood with the high priest. But I I have things that I can picture in my mind. And what do we do when we pray for people going into leadership and to, to be ordained in ministry? We pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to be upon them, just like the anointing oil of Aaron. So as we picture anointing oil on Aaron's head, to represent the people before God and to serve the Lord in the priesthood, we can picture the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost upon the apostles for what they were called to do, and we can picture the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon us for our ministries that God's entrusted to us. And you don't have to be a pastor for that or a pastor's wife or anything else. Just being a believer, we want the anointing oil of Aaron on us. In fact, later on in the Psalms, it talks about how beautiful is the oil on Aaron's beard coming down his face, the anointing oil so symbolic of being fully empowered by the Holy Spirit for all that we're called to do. For it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's what this represents here. So it's an anointing from the Lord to do the ministry. It's a consecration from the Lord to be placed in our ministry. So whatever it might be that God has placed us in, we are called to be set apart. And there is a consecration in it. There's an anointing in it, equipping in it, if you will. And while this is very unique contextually, there is a principle there for all of us, and we need, we need the anointing oil on us. We, we need it to do what we're called to do. And all the people are there to see this. So they're all in this together, like we're in a covenant. This is the high priest. These are the sons of Aaron, and the priesthood's beginning, and this is like really uncharted territory where we're going with this covenant with God as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who is Israel, the nation of Israel, coming out of the bondage of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. It's a brand new beginning, and this is the dedication of their worship service before the Lord. That's what it is. It's very special. Now, we read on in verse 14, speaking of Moses. So they're all there, the nation, the elements, the anointing oil. It's a big day. It's a very special day. Verse 14, and he, Moses, brought the bull of the sin offering, and then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering, and Moses killed it. And then he took the blood and put some on the horns of the altar all around with his finger, purify the altar. He poured the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it, making atonement for it. Then he took all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys with the fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull, its hide, its flesh, and its offal, he burned with fire outside the camp, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he brought the ram as the burnt offering. So the bull was the sin offering, verse 14, but now we have the ram as the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses killed it. And then he sprinkled the blood all around the altar, and he cut the ram in pieces. Moses burned the head, the pieces, the fat, and the fat. Then he washed the entrails and legs in water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he brought the second ram, the ram of consecration. So you see the distinction, burnt offering, excuse me, sin offering, and the burnt offering, and then the consecration offering. So the second lamb is a consecration offering. And again, these are distinctions. And whatever God makes distinct, it's worth noting. It's important. So this is the consecration toward the ministry. 
Then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and Moses killed it. And he took some of its blood, put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he brought Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the tip of the right ears, on the thumb of the right hand, on the big toes of the right feet. And Moses sprinkled blood all around the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail, all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, two kidneys, their fat in the, in the right thigh. And from the basket of unleavened bread, remember the unleavened bread there in the first two verses, that he, that the, the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, a cake of bread anointed with oil and one wafer and put them on the fat of the right thigh. And he put all these in Aaron's hands, his son's hand, and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar of the burnt offering, and they were consecration offerings for a sweet aroma. That was an offering made by fire to the Lord, and Moses took the breast and waved it as a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' part of the realm of consecration, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, progressively, we're seeing where the anointing oil was put on Aaron, and you had that. And then you had the anointing oil was sprinkled all over all the items of the service in the tabernacle, the holy place, outside the altar, all that. So everything was anointed for the, for the, by the oil, representing God's spirit and power upon it. And then here we have these, these offerings now, the bull, the ram, the ram, you know, so it's a burnt offering again, excuse me, it's a sin offering, then the burnt offering, then the consecration offering, then the wave offering comes in here, and then the, the unleavened bread comes in as an offering, and all this happens in its consecration as the Lord commanded, but now we have blood coming into the situation through these offerings, blood on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right foot, which of course is clearly so symbolic of the human experience, what we hear, what we reach, what we do, and then where we go, right, in the right side. And we see that here for Aaron and his sons. And you see it right there in that text. But it progresses from here in verse 30. It says, Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood, so the two are mixed together, which was on the altar, and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his, his garments, his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle meeting and eat it there with bread, that is in the basket of consecration offering, as I've commanded, saying, Aaron and his son shall eat it. What remains of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn with fire. And you shall not go outside the door of tabernacle meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are ended. For seven days he shall consecrate you as he has done this day, so the Lord has commanded to do to make atonement for you. Therefore, you shall stay at the door of tabernacle meeting day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord that, he, that you may not die. For so I've commanded... So Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. Now, back here in verse 30, again, we see that the oil and the blood were put together and sprinkled. Again, if you read this really fast, you can just read by this like, oh, yeah, you know, it's the Old Testament, it's what they did. No, this is, this is pretty profound. Like, you're beginning your ministry, and you're the high priest, and you got the garment on, and God's calling everything the way he wants it to be, and you get sprinkled with the anointing oil and the blood of the sacrifice. Like that's a, that's a very powerful picture. But again, it's a picture of what we're meant to be as New Testament believers because we can't have the spirit of God unless we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So the spirit of God is in the world, God's Holy Spirit. God, God's Spirit sees everything. He's the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's 
personal. He's a third person of God's triune nature, and he sees everything and knows everything. And he's in the world, and he's convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he's not in them. Like, we're not born with the Spirit of God. We're born with our spirit in the image of God, but we're not, the Spirit of God does not dwell in us. But to be born again is when we ask Christ into our life. So when we hear that Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave for our justification, and is seated the right hand of the Father and ever lives and intercedes for us and is promised for his return to come and establish his kingdom. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, that moment that happens, that, that faith, the Spirit of God does come in us and we're born again. So here comes the anointing. Now, the New Testament talks about this. Like John says in 1 John, this anointing you already have. There's an anointing. Jesus talked about it in the Gospel of John, chapter 15 and 16. 14, 15, 16, he's talking about he goes to the prepared place for us, and the Holy Spirit's going to do this. He's going to guide us in truth. He's going to guide us in knowledge and understanding. And so when we give our life to Christ, we're made alive. And thus, like Jesus was trying to explain to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you're born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I say you must be born again. Born once of the flesh, but receiving Christ by faith, not earning it, receiving it, born of the Spirit. There's the anointing. There's the anointing. But in receiving that anointing and being born of the Spirit, like it says in Corinthians that we're the temple of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, even as the Spirit was there in the holies of holies at this time, the blood is a critical element because part of being born again is being, as we've been covering this, especially when we did the Passover lamb in Exodus, that we're under the blood. That without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And it's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can save us from our sins. So we have to be under his blood. His blood in our sacrifice has to be reckoned to our account for our sins. So it's his blood that provides forgiveness for our sins. And then it's the Holy Spirit indwelling us that gives us the power to to live the life he has for us. So we need the blood for forgiveness and we need the Holy Spirit for the power. And so here's Aaron in a foreshadow of these things as the high priest, a human being from the ethnicity, the nation of Israel, descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Aaron, excuse me, the tribe of the Levites, of Aaron being a a Kohathite, and he's a high priest. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, for centuries, high priests would have to come from the bloodline as descendants of Aaron. But here on this day, there you are. It's opening day for the kingdom of God. Here you are. You're going to do this. And what do they do? You get a bath. You get these incredible garments put on you with the jewels and all this stuff that's incredible. And it's a shadow of things to come. And it's a, a model of things in heaven. And they come up to you and they sprinkle you with the oil and the blood. That's powerful. Now, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2 concerning the church, Gentiles and Jews, so whatever ethnic background is, that we are a priesthood. In fact, we're also told in the same passage that we're a royal priesthood. So don't feel disconnected from this, whether you're a five-year-old girl or a three-year-old girl or a 90-year-old man or anything in between. Every human being of all languages and cultures who gives their life to Christ, we are told that we are a priesthood unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So everyone listening to me tonight who confesses Christ as Lord, you are a royal priesthood. We are kings and priests to the Lord. First Peter chapter 2, check it out. And we're being built together a holy house, like a temple, a holy habitation around the chief cornerstone, who's Jesus Christ. But we're the priests. Now, we don't do this. 
and no one sprinkling us with oil and blood. But what was happening here is symbolic of what happens for us. And that's why we need fear no evil. That's why we need to be at peace with God in our hearts and trust him with all that he has for us. It's a very strange time. Muy extraña. It's very strange. And for us, it's without precedent. And it's global. Whatever's going on here, it's the whole world. Now, it's intense in our country, but it's intense in other countries for different reasons. It's a very strange time. But for the Church of Jesus Christ, as we do our best as individuals and as leaders of churches in different regions of the world, we're all facing difficult decisions. If you want to eat in China, I mentioned this on Saturday, but like it's a fact. The, the communist government, which is godless and Christ-rejecting, to say the least, and oppressive and totalitarian and authoritarian, the people are completely dependent upon the government to be kept alive because the government takes everything and owns everything. And to receive their welfare checks or their government checks, which, of course, we're becoming very dependent upon during COVID, the government's requiring them to renounce any faith in Jesus Christ. That's a fact. So that's what they're facing here. They're in China. Now, we're facing, supposedly we can't sing in church or whatever, and, but it changes every week, so what do we even really know what we're really facing? And again, restaurants are facing it, businesses are facing it, city councils are facing it, county supervisors, health directors have resigned, and all these different things. We're, <laughs> but we're the church in Orange County, California which is different than being the church in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I've pastored, or Burlington, Vermont, where I've pastored. Or Florida, where my in-laws, Jim Gallagher, is the pastor, Gallagher Chapel, Vero Beach. There's different, unique things. Now, we're all in America, but we're seeing how fragmented that is right now. So I just want to remind us tonight, we're under the blood, and we have the anointing. We're under the blood, and we're under the anointing. So here's to the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sins and cleanses us from all righteousness, unrighteousness. And here's to the anointing that equips us for everything God wants to do in our life of every generation, every time zone, as long as the church is here. And we're here, and God's not done with us. So under the blood with the anointing. I just picture Aaron standing there, and it's like, there it is. That's what we need. That's who we are. And we cannot move ourselves from being under the blood and we cannot do what we need to do. We cannot face what we have to face in victory and in confidence and authority that God has for us if we don't have the anointing oil of the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit. And all those studies I heard for years at pastor's conferences about the Holy Spirit being with us and then in us and upon us, the N, you know, the para is with in Greek, N is in us and epi is upon us. However you want to explain it, however you want to understand it, on this day in July 2020, the Church of Jesus Christ, whether we're in China or the Middle East or Russia or South America or here in America, we need to be under the blood and spirit-filled. And Jesus said, if we seek, knock, and ask, he'll give us what we're asking for. And the context of that in Luke's gospel is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is something that we have a choice over. <laughs> you know, the world can take a lot of things from you. Governments can take a lot of things from you, and they can force a lot of things on you. But Romans chapter 8 makes clear nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And we can choose to be as spirit-filled as we want to be. Chapter 9. And no government can take that from us.
It came to pass on the eighth day. So remember, they were set apart for seven days. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering, a ram as a burnt offering, without blemish, of course, and offer them before the Lord and to the children of Israel. You shall speak, saying, take a kid of the goat as a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both in the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering, also a bull and a ram as a peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord as a grain offering mixed with oil. And for today, the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, Go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Now, here's where we really see the distinction between Moses, excuse me, between Aaron and Jesus. Because Aaron had to make an offering for himself as a sinful person. And then an offering for the people. But this is the distinction that the book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes concerning Jesus Christ, who had no sin, never sinned. The only human being without sin apart from Adam before he fell with Eve. Jesus doesn't make an offering for his sins. He makes an offering of his own life for our sins. That's the distinction. And it's a huge distinction. And the book of Hebrews, essentially, a large portion of it is dedicated to teach us that theological, eternal truth. Aaron died, another replaces Aaron. Then Aaron's son dies. Aaron's grandson dies. His great, 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 great. And it goes on and on. Because none of them could ever be the sufficient one. They'd make sacrifice for their own sins and for the people's sin. But Jesus died once for all. God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and he will save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus, which means Savior. He is Savior. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we could become righteousness of God. And that's the great distinction between the Old Testament priesthood with the Levites and the high priests under Aaron than what Jesus Christ has done for us. So it was a type, but Jesus fulfills it. And we're told the promise, as these offerings are being made for Aaron and the people, that God promises, and again, all the congregation drew near. We see that in verse 5. And they stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded to you. The glory of the Lord will appear to you. So he's promising that God's glory, I mean, God's glory. I mean, eternity is going to come to time, space, and matter. If someone came to us and said, God's glory is going to appear to you tonight. That would get our attention. Now, we have services where you can feel the presence of the Lord perhaps a bit more than others. Sometimes. Sometimes it goes that way. Sometimes you spend quiet time with the Lord and you just feel like God's really speaking to you more than maybe other times. Sometimes it goes like that. But if the message from heaven to you, to me, to us, planet Earth was the glory of the Lord is going to appear to you today, I just wonder like how I would approach the day how I would approach my attitude, how I'd approach anything and everything. I mean, really, it's kind of like if you know you're going to step into eternity because you're going toward his glory when you step into eternity. I think we live, mature believers as well, I think we, you know, we, we want to set our mind on things above. And I think for the most part here at Worship Generation, we are thinking about the kingdom and we want to raise our children to seek the Lord and be fruitful for the Lord. We realize we're pilgrims here. And I, I hope most of you that 
listen to me or whatever, understand that's our heart, that we're pilgrims, we're passing through. We're trying to prepare people for eternity by being fruitful in time. So when we get to eternity, the things God was entrusted to us can entrust more in the coming kingdom and the next dimension, his eternal kingdom. But there are times we just are earthly. That's why it says over and over, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And we're earthly. Where gravity pulls us down physically and sin pulls us down spiritually. And the temporal dominates our thoughts. And it can poison us and we become desensitized to eternity and the things that really matter when we just live in time, space, and matter and forget that this is all just a test and preparing us for eternity. But what can make us think about eternity more than if we knew today the glory of the Lord will appear to you? And that's something we, the Lord calls us to think about. To, to think about that today could be the day. Might be today, like the song says, the, the day of his glory. But we're going to go to glory. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're destined to be in glory and see the one who is glory. And who can understand that glory? Like, how can we understand the glory of the next dimension? I mean, we can read these passages. The glory is going to fall here before this chapter is done. But, like, that's glory, limited time, space, and matter. Like, Jesus being unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration it, or Solomon's dedication to the temple, it's glory, and everyone's like falling down. But like, I mean, when Jesus appears to John in Revelation chapter one, he falls down as good as dead. Now, this is John, his disciple whom Jesus loved. When Jesus comes in his full glory in Revelation chapter one, John falls down as good as dead. It, it is like as good as dead as Jesus appeared in his glory. We need to see Jesus in his glory. We get unsettled by men in their glory and women in their glory. We get deceived by humanity and glory. We need to see God in his glory with the eyes of faith. He's coming. And, of course, he's coming in glory. Zechariah tells us, every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. He's coming in the clouds in glory. Jesus said in Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, that when he comes, he's coming with the angels of God in great glory upon the clouds. He's coming. We're all going to see this glory someday in the next dimension, if not in this dimension. See the glory of the Lord. Who can even comprehend such a statement? Verse 8. Aaron therefore went to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Yep, he's a sinner. Then the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood, put it on the horn of the altar, and poured the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the fatty loaf from the liver of the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned with fire outside the camp. So that's that bull. You've got you to take that outside the camp. God knows why. Verse 12. And he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's son presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled all around the altar. Then they presented the burnt offering to him with its pieces, its head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he brought the people's offering. So see, now he's going from himself and his sons to the people. He brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and killed it, offered it for sin like the first one. And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner, of course. And then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. He also killed the bull and the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering, which, of course, we studied the last two weeks on Saturday nights, the peace offering, which were for the people. And Aaron's sons presented to him the blood, which is sprinkled all around the altar, and fat from the bull and the ram, the fatty tail, which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the fatty lobe attached to the liver. And they put the fat on the breast, then he burned the fat on the altar, but the breast and the right thigh Aaron waved as a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses had commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, and he blessed them. 
And he came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went to the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Again, this is one of those things where you just go like, wow, like how many times does something like this happen in time, space, and matter? Like, seriously. I mean, there's just certain things in human history that have happened, and they have happened, and they're recorded for our instruction. For no prophecy of Scripture ever came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as the Spirit guided them. And they're all here for us to know and to learn from. So when you think about the glory of the Lord transcending the dimensions and God's glory coming down with holy fire to consume these offerings in front of the people, million people, who can even, like, I mean, even the best movie producers, how do you capture this image? Because you can capture a visual. You can even capture the sound if you think you could. I mean, think of Elijah's chariot when he came out of eternity, a a different dimension, the chariot to come receive Elijah up into heaven. It probably sounded like a freight train or something. I mean, who can know? But even if you can make the sound and you could create the visual, how could you create the emotion? Like, how could you create the emotion of a human being, a descendant of Adam and Eve, standing before God with his glory in time, space, and matter in these earthen vessels? Like, how could you? You couldn't. But faith is the sense of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. So Hebrews 11, description of faith, is what we need to apply when we read something like this. And we don't want to just go like, oh, wow, yeah, like God's glory. No. I just, we got to stop and go like, wow, this is like, this is really something profound. Because again, when Solomon dedicated the temple, similar situation. When the three apostles were on the mountain with Jesus and he was transfigured, similar situation. When Jesus filled the, the fish, the nets with Peter and Peter was on his face and he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Like there's just holy moments where, or maybe when Peter walked on water, just, there's just different things at different times of the supernatural that Jesus did or that God was working in the Old Testament that just make you stop and go like, it's God's glory and it's for his glory. It can be miraculous, which is to glorify the Lord, but really like something specifically for his glory. And this is for his glory. Fire came from heaven and consumed the offerings. And everyone was on their faces. Now, you can study or watch movies of human history of kings and things like that. And depending on how powerful certain kings were, when they came out, everyone would bow. You know, the the whole idea of like kowtow from the Chinese culture of bowing and paying homage to a superior, like that kind of a thing. And there's certain, you know, emperors and dynasties where they come outside, you know, hundreds of thousands of people would bow down to them, if you will. What did Nebuchadnezzar want? He wanted to play music and everyone bows down to him. Like the homage of the, the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. I was watching a movie about Russia. It's a, it was Ivan the Terrible, who's actually pretty esteemed highly by the Russian people in Russian history. He's like 1600s. Yeah, actually Peter's late 1600s, Peter the Great, so he's before that. Uh, 1500s, about the time Martin Luther was putting the 95 Thesis on the door in Wittenberg is the same time as Ivan the Terrible. But he defeated the Mongols. So 200 years of oppression to Genghis Khan's descendants and the Mongols, like ripping Russia apart, going on their way to Europe. But in this movie, but Ivan kind of went a little sketchy down the stretch there. Um, But the people love him because he broke the yoke of the Mongols, if you don't know your Russian history. But anyways, 
there's this movie, and like Russians make movies too, like, like how Russians make movies, and, and it's all in Russian, so it helps you if you're learning Russian, but there's a scene where he came out, and he, he's going through the palace, and they're putting everything on him, and he walks out, and it's Ivan the Terrible there in, in Moscow, and he, uh, he comes out, and everyone's bowing in homage. They're just, they're just, his glory, his greatness, and they're all bowing. I saw that, and I thought, man, like, why don't we, why aren't, like, if this is for a man, Ivan the Terrible, which really means, is translated Ivan the Strict, by the way, not terrible, but we do this for men and women. We, the glory of man, we see the glory of man, like, oh my goodness, it's this famous sports person. It's this famous politician. And it's like, and your point is? Like, that's what humans do. That's what we've been doing since the dawn of creation. This is real glory. This is God's glory. This is the glory that sends fire from heaven of a preview of coming attractions and consumes it. So when these people are on their faces and they're like, whoa, it's not, it's not a mighty king that can, you know, you got to kowtow to or you live in terror of. This is God's glory. This is God's glory. This is the glory of the throne with the rainbow glory over it in Revelation chapter 4. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders, worthy are you, glory, 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 thanksgiving and praise. This is that glory. This is who we serve as a church. And I've said this quite a bit in recent weeks. Whenever you're tempted to be afraid of men, just think of God's glory. Because you can't even compare them. If Paul says you can't compare the light afflictions to the eternal weight of glory, how much less can you compare the glory of men to the glory of God? Like you just, well, I'll tell you what God says about man's glory. The glory of man is as the grass of the field. It grows, it withers, and it fades away. But the word of the Lord abides forever. By the way, I've told this before, but not for a long time. I was asked to do the opening prayer at Virginia Beach City Council one time, about 1992. I didn't know what to say or anything. I should have had a Billabong t-shirt on. I was not their idea of a Southern minister in 1992. And all I had was that verse. I felt like God gave me that verse. I actually read that verse to the mayor and the city council. The glory of man is the grass of the field that grows, it withers, and it fades away. And they looked at me like, who's this guy? But, you know, that mayor fought Jesus Christ and fought the churches in Virginia Beach fervently and passionately. She was opposed to the kingdom of God, and she hated Pat Robertson and CBN. And God sent me like, okay, you know, because, I mean, after you've been in the open ocean and 50-foot seas and God saved you and had people point guns at your head and God saved you and all the times God saved me, like, what's the mayor and just reading the passage of the glory of man? She's probably gone now. She's pretty old back then, but I did what I was told to do as best I could. And I just reminded those people in power of a city of a half million people that their glory is fading glory and God's glory is eternal glory. There were some servants that were fishermen there because there was like a case about like fish and tuna or whatever. Guy's like, dude, Joey Brand, I did not see that coming. Like, sorry, whatever, you know, just do what you called to do. We need to, we need your mind of God's glory because the glory of man is the flowers of the fields that grows, it withers and it fades away. So all that glory that men have out there scrambling to hold on to right now, save the corporation, save the sport, save the industry, just Jesus on the throne, and Jesus is coming in great glory on the clouds of heaven with his holy angels. That's that. And Aaron pronounced blessings on the people, and Moses and Aaron together pronounced blessings on the people. Isn't that beautiful? They pronounced blessings on the people. They pronounced blessings upon them. So all this glory 
And for the people of covenant, there's blessings and there's blessings. And yeah, there's holy fire consuming everything like, whoa, everyone on your face. But they're being blessed. God is pronouncing blessings on them through his mediator, Moses, and the high priest and the high priest alone. Double blessings and holy fire, which is something I think we all want, right? I mean, what, what more could you ask for as a believer in Jesus Christ in July 2020? We'll take the double blessing and the holy fire. That's what we want. And if it's not what we want, it's what we should want, because it's certainly what we need. I know it's what I need. Chapter 10. So in the midst of all this glory, we have this little incident. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put his fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael, Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near, carried them out by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, the other sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, which is the normal sign of mourning for death, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. See, they're representing all the people. They just... Sometimes it's bigger than us and how we feel about something. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of Tabernacle and Media unless you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you, and they did according to the word of Moses. This is such an intense passage, isn't it? Like this seven days of consecration, this beautiful day, the sacrifices happen for Aaron, for his family, for the people, and then Man, this happens right here. Like, what is it about human beings that when God's being glorified, that we feel we got to get in on it and take some of the glory? I, this is the history of human religion in the sense of, like, what people do. How many good ministries have been struck down because some man or woman tried to take the glory that belonged to the Lord and offered profane fire? What would profane fire be for us in this timeline? Well, profane fire certainly is anything that would put the glory on us instead of the Lord. That's pretty obvious in the context. But also it's offering something that's not what the Lord's asking for. So it would be something out of order from what he said. Now, we know the word of God is given so we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we're serving the Lord and we're confessing Jesus Christ, especially in the leadership, and we say that, oh, we're a representative of Christ, and we deny that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and we deny that the Bible is the word of God, and we deny that sin is sin, man, that is profane fire. Let me say that again. And by the way, if you're in a ministry or under a ministry where the leadership does not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, they do not believe that the Bible is the authoritative, inspired word of God, and they do not believe that sin is sin, you need to leave that church. You need to leave that church. You need to leave that church right now because that's, that's faulty. That's, that's bad. That's bad. Because that's not true shepherds. That's not true pastors. That's not leaders in God's kingdom with the heart for God. And unfortunately, a lot of the highest leaders of many denominations do not believe that Jesus Christ is on the way to heaven. They do not believe the word of God is the final authority. And they do not believe that sin is sin. But didn't Jesus tell us it would be like that in the last days? Didn't Jesus say that would be indicative of the end game and how it would play out in the end? Yes, he warned us that that's the way it would be. Doctrines tickling to people's ears. I cringe 
when I think of some people in leadership offering profane fire, but actually I'm more concerned about me not offering profane fire for I'm going to give an account, like it says in James. And as it is, sometimes I don't cross my T's and dot my I's. And when I catch it, I'm like, wow, how did I miss that? So, um, man, don't follow profane fire and definitely do not offer it because the glory is the Lord's. We're to walk in humility and brokenness and service to the Lord and serving others. God will deal with the things that God's, God will not give his glory to another. And so heavy. I mean, imagine Aaron took his adult son struck down right there and they couldn't mourn. And God says, hey, control yourself right now because it's not just you and your emotion. You represent the work of God in front of a million people right now and they'll suffer if you blink. Which is a pretty good application about how hard it is to be in leadership sometimes. Sometimes in leadership, you got to carry a heavier weight than most people even know especially in spiritual leadership. Sometimes you got to pray for things that no one even else knows what you're praying for because it's so heavy and only you and the Lord know what's going on. And sometimes you have to make extremely difficult decisions and they affect a lot of people and their perception of the Lord and the perception of the leadership that you're a part of. We do not want God's wrath coming upon his people. We do not want to stumble God's people and we, we don't want to capitulate and compromise in a cowardly manner the truths and the principles that are so clear in the Bible concerning serving Jesus Christ and his church for such a time as this. So when I look in the mirror, I just think, you know what? Pick your battles, but don't be a coward. Because the Bible's not a book about cowards. And by the way, what's it says in Revelation that who's not in the holy city? Cowards. If I think there's a lot of cowards out there, who cares? But if there are a lot of cowards out there, then that's concerning. Don't be a coward. Be bold as a lion. Like the prophet Amos said, oh, you know, the Lord has spoken and the lion has roared and who can but declare the word of the Lord. That's who we want to be. Man, stay away from profane fire. Don't be a coward and realize that leadership is tough and sometimes you got to just keep your garments on because the anointing is on and you can't blink and you can't respond and you got to turn the other cheek and you got to hold the line. You got to do what's right no matter what's going on. You got to steady, steady. You got to stay at the helm in the gnarliest storm because that's what you're called to do. Keep your garment on. Don't rip your stuff. You're mourning. You're grieving. A lot's going on. Steady on port side. Steady on the bridge. Verse 8, we wrap it up. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you. When you go into the tabernacle meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statue forever throughout your generation, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons who were left, Take the grain offering that remains of the offering made by fire of the Lord, eat it without leaven, Besides the altar, it's most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire. For so I have been commanded. How do you eat the meal after that? Like I can't even, but this is, every day is a new day. Every situation, just no matter how much shock you're in, things go forward from where you're at. That's what's so sobering about life. No matter how much shock you're in, and no matter what you're facing, like you still got to wake up and face another day. You still got to get through the moment after that phone call. It's insane. Like, Life is so unpredictable and can just be so overwhelming. But you got to stay on point with what the Lord's calling us to do. Eat the bread in a holy place.
The bread, the wave offering, and the thigh offering, verse 14, and the heave offering, you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your sons' due, which are given from the sacrifice of peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering, they shall bring with the offering of fat made by fire to the offer as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord commanded. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was, burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the holy place, since it's most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place, as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they've offered their sin offering, their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I'd eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content. A little interesting parenthetical thought here on these events that basically Aaron's like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm in shock. I, I'm in shock. Like, if this happened during the offering, how am I going to eat the sin offering? And what's going to happen to me? Like, Aaron basically said, I'm in shock. You, you know, like, and we're not designed for death, and especially loved ones. And I've been there. I've been first responder many times to death, tragedy. And it's like, you just, you can't even explain what, how human beings cope with these things. The waves. And so Moses is like, okay, I get it. I get it. So it's just, I get it. There's between Moses and his brother. Moses' and nephews were struck down by the Lord. You know, it's like, but Moses is passionate about the Lord more than family, which is important. But I get it. So I close with this final thought going back to this distinguishing here in verse 10. It says here in verse 10, that you, so no drinking, don't, you can't, can you kick on the priesthood with an altered mind? You need to be sharp. Remember Pastor Chuck would never take aspirin. <laughs> like, like, you just, you, you, you want a sharp mind in serving the Lord. You want a sharp mind in life. Life's hard enough when you're straight and sober, and you can inebriate yourself and medicate yourself, but you just make it harder. You just make it harder. So that you, you may distinguish between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. It is really important that we are discerning, that we are sharp, we're abiding in the Lord, that his words abide in us, that we're walking as best we can in sincerity and obedience to the Lord. Because it's important that we can distinguish between holy and unholy, clean and unclean, truthhood, falsehood, what's true, what's false, what's the Lord, what's not. And it's really important for all of us for such a time as this to be present in the Lord, to be dependent upon the Lord, and with all the craziness going on, to be able to see through it and go like, that's holy, that's unholy. That's clean, that's unclean, morally. This exalts the Lord, this goes against the Lord. This is consistent with the word, this is against the word. And it's not rocket scientist. It's not rocket science or having to be a rocket scientist. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will give us discernment. And as we all are, doing our best, getting new speakers, bigger TVs, better pixelization, better soundboards, big screens outside like some of the big churches are doing. We're all doing our best. But just know this, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And to that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord for all eternity. So keep that in mind when you're trying to distinguish between holy, unholy, clean, unclean, true and false, the kingdom of the darkness in Jesus' name.